I've used PKD for years. It has brought brightness, sparkle, flair to my life and to my plates. It can do to you as well. One thing today I'd like to share with you, though, is a secret. Despite manufacturer's warnings, I use PKD washing up liquid to unclog my brains. Why don't you? Hey, dickheads! Like a pink laser beam of truth beaming straight from San Diego, California to your brain hole, we are your Nexus 6 models, and we are trying our best to avoid the Blade Runners. Today, we are talking about the 1982 classic, the first Philip K. Dick adaptation, Blade Runner. We're here <laughs> to talk about Blade Runner. Uh, <laughs> Blade Runner. Woo! Uh, this is our month of Blade Runner returning from our season break. So what is this, season three of Dickhead? Yep. yep. All right. So anywho, joining me today is... Anthony Trevino. Anthony, tell them who you are, what you do. I, they already know who I am. Oh, my God. All right. Uh, so um, I'm an amateur mortician. Supermodel. Um, supermodel. <laughs> and no. Uh, yeah, I am an author and a film critic. Anthony Trevino. That's me. Yeah. And uh, David Agronoff. I'm author of Goddamn Killing Machines and Punk Rock Ghost Story. Langhorn. And I'm Langhorn J. Tweed. <laughs> All right. On that note, hey, listen, we are probably, this is Blade Runner. There's going to be people that happen upon this that have never listened to our show. Well, um, so for anyone who's not familiar with our podcast, um, we are the Dickheads, and we are covering all the Philip K. Dick novels in order of publication with various other Dick-adjacent science fiction and chicanery um, involved in the new wave of science fiction from the 60s, which we are all fans of. This is the doozy. This is the big one. This is the one that put uh, our boy Phil on the map. So it's really important. And um, we, the, the first option for this movie goes back to uh, 1968 when the book was published. So um, the development of Blade Runner as a film or Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep is very long. Uh, we are not going to talk that much about the novel. Uh, we did a whole episode on that. So if you have not listened to our Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep episode, uh, I suggest that because if you want to hear about mercerism and mood organs and all that stuff, you, you got to go to that one. Yeah, we'll, we'll get into it a little bit in the comparison. Yeah. Part, for, for our longtime listeners, uh, you guys got any updates you want to talk about? Anything uh, coming up? Uh, Anything relevant? Uh, there, there was does, a, it, does it have to be relevant to yeah, PKD? Is that there, what was a, there was an article just published about how AI intelligence is learning empathy and how the Voight-Kampff test might not uh, be relevant in the coming future because we are teaching computers how to understand emotion and empathy. So, mm-hmm. Which isn't that far off from the movie because... The, that was where they were headed in the movie. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, I saw that article. Um, I didn't uh, read it in depth, but I, I scanned it a little bit and meant to come back to it. But um, I, I do think that that, that was curious. Um, 
As far as things that are going on with the Blade Runner world, I know um, there's still comics and things like that being produced, but... Uh, the comic Blade Runner uh, 2019 is really good, you guys. Uh, so good that we did some videos on it. So uh, one other update I would want to give is that um, uh, uh, Mr. Tweed and I did two... We did two video or two episodes of my other podcast, uh, Postcards from a Dying World, where we did our best, uh, well, I did my best reads of the year, and then Larry and I talked about our favorite movies of 2020. But yeah, so uh, there's fun movie and book talk, so if you don't get enough of us... Um, uh, there's always that. There's always that. Wait, yeah. is this like a pseudo-plug section? Are we doing pseudo-plugs? Sure, pseudo-plug. Yeah, oh, plug. well, because Hisser's 3 comes out this year, which I co-wrote with Ryan C. Thomas, so you all know. have that to look forward to. We just finalized the cover art for it with uh, two, ri- two, two writers, two artists who are going to basically redo all three book covers. Um, so it's going to be pretty bitchin'. That is awesome. I am very excited to see. Do you have a, do you have a release date? Release date is TBD because uh, okay. it's it's getting proofread right now by somebody that's not Ryan or I because I can't look at that fucking thing anymore. I've read it <laughs> three times now. I can't do it anymore. Yeah, I got to see uh, Anthony write the beginning of that book when we did our retreat last summer. So it's true. Yeah, very excited for that. Uh, Where I rewrote his entire first chapter because it was boring. <laughs> Love you, Ryan. All right. On that note, let's get into Blade Runner. Um, as I said, we'll start with the story and publication history. We don't need to go into the publication history of the novel because we did that extensively in the Do Androids Dream Electric Sheep episode. But it is interesting to talk about the history of the option because this was one that PKD optioned as far back as 1968. I believe the year it was published. It may have been even before it was published. Um, and the first option was optioned to a man named Bertram... Berman. And what I learned about him via Google was that he was a producer on the Bob Hope show and a courtroom drama called The Verdict is Yours. Um, and what was that like a precursor to the People's Court? Yeah, uh, something like that. But it was a well, it was a courtroom show. So it was like every, I think it was like a Perry Mason ripoff. Oh, OK. Uh, but uh, old uh, Berman uh, retired from Hollywood and went to teach um, at a film school at the University of Cincinnati. And his obituary, the headline was, gave Spielberg his start. But I, can't, I couldn't figure out from the obituary how he gave Spielberg his start. But I'm assuming he was also a producer on Night Gallery because that's where Spielberg had his first directing gig was on Night Gallery. Um, Rod Serling's show after the Twilight Zone. But I could be wrong about that. I don't have facts on that. I'm just going by what I read in the obituary for old Bertram Berman, who first... Uh, solid name. That is yeah. a solid name. <laughs> yeah, and he owned the um, option for Blade Runner, or no, for uh, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep until 1973 when they were bought by Herb Jaffe. And a name I know. Yeah, Herb. Well, you might know her. You, there's a film of his that that you will know, and we're probably all fans of. But Herb Jaffe and his son Robert were collaborated on their version of "Do Enjoy Dream of Electric Sheep," 
they bought the option together. They are known for their first big film together was Demon Seed, which was an adaptation of Dean Koontz's novel, Demon Seed. Um, and Robert Jaffe, uh, his most successful film was the 1987 version of George R.R. R. Martin's awesome novella, Night Flyers, which is not a great movie. It was a low budget. It was okay. Um, yeah, Anthony likes it. Um, I, I was I was thumbs upping the show. Oh, yeah, it did become a show, and he was an executive producer on that just because he owned the rights to the, the movie. Um, the, the novella Night Flyers by George R.R. R. Martin is fucking incredible. It's great. It's good. Uh, it's good. But his dad, Herb Jaffe, um, his uh, best film, in my opinion, is he was one of the producers of Fright Night, Tom Holland's nice. Fright Night. Herb Jaffe um, wrote... Uh, a script of uh, Do Android's Dream of Electric Sheep that was um, <clears throat> not PKD's favorite. So we'll get into that in a minute. <laughs> but um, according to PKD, and this may be apocryphal, but he claims that he had meetings with Martin Scorsese and um, Jay Cox about doing Do Android's Dream of Electric Sheep, but the only proof that we have of this is is phil saying it i've never seen anything in any of the stuff i've read about scorsese saying that he developed that um but this would have been early when he was scorsese i don't even know if he'd done mean streets he was By what year um this was this would be when the option the herb jaffe option was ran flo- out was floating around 73 so yeah he had he had done I think he had done Mean Streets by then. Yeah, and he did uh, he did a couple of movies like a Boxcar Bertha or something for Roger Corman at that point. So, Herb Jaffe was also the executive producer of Motel Hell. Yes, and his son wrote Motel Hell. Yes, so um, yeah, PKD was not 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 a fan of their work, but um, <laughs> I do. Oh, he's uh, PKD, not a fan of Motel Hell, huh? There in the notes, we have the first quote. It began years ago, PKD explains. Martin Scorsese and Jake Cox were both interested in androids, but they didn't option it. That was the first movie interest in any property of mine. Then later, Herb Jaffe optioned it, and Robert Jaffe did a screenplay back about 1973. The screenplay was sent to me, and it was so crude that I didn't understand that it was actually the shooting script. I thought it was the rough. I wrote to them and asked if they would like me to do the shooting script, at which point Robert Jaffe, the one who wrote the screenplay, flew down here to Orange County and confessed that he had written it under a non de plume. I said to him then that it was so bad that I wanted to know if he wanted me to beat him up there at the airport or wait till we got to my apartment. <laughs> Ouch! Robert Jaffe was very straightforward and asked Dick if he really thought it was that bad, whereupon Dick responded candidly, I said... All I ask is that you do not drag me down to ruin with you. I said that I'd honestly prefer to buy back the property than let them make a film based on that screenplay, and he was real nice about it. I gave him suggestions, and he took notes, and then I noticed that he wasn't actually writing, but rather he was just moving the pin about a quarter of an inch from a piece of paper that had already that already had printing on it so that he was only pretending to take notes. I realized then there, there was a gulf between me and Hollywood. So what we know about the Robert Jaffe... Uh, the Robert and Herb Jaffe version of the script is that they wrote it as a comedy. Kind oh, of, really? 
like um, that's a bad like, idea. <laughs> like a get smart type. Ooh, so this is about two cops on the hunt for an electric sheep. <laughs> yeah, um, something like that. Um, By the way, Mean Streets did uh, come out in 1973. So, yeah, and I'm sure the first thing uh, Martin Scorsese wanted to do was was an Android movie <laughs> <Right> <laughs> yeah. after Mean Streets, but you know, maybe. What came uh, after Mean Streets? Was it Taxi Driver? Alice doesn't live here anymore. Yeah. Okay. Also, also a good movie, but very good. Um, but that was for TV, wasn't it? Um, Not. I, I, it doesn't say that here. Yeah. Oh well. But if you think that uh, PKD was being hard on on Jaffe, then how about the rest of the the next quote? <clears throat> A producer by the name of Herb Jaffe has an option on Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep. I don't dare badmouth his silly movies, but if you're listening, Herb Jaffe, I love your money, but you sure write lousy scripts. You're a Neanderthal man. You're back with George, pal, and I don't want you to make a movie out of my book. The screenplay that they wrote for Androids was a combination of Steve Reeves and Maxwell Smart. Robert Jaffe... Herb Jaffe's son flew down to Fullerton to talk with me about it because I didn't think it was a final shooting script. I thought it was just a rough draft. I told him, I'm going to beat you up right here in the airport because you're going to drag me down with you guys and ruin my career if you make a movie out of my book. He said, you mean it's that bad? And I said, yeah. Finally, he said, you mean you wrote that book seriously? You science fiction writers take your work seriously? I said, seriously enough to throw you right out of this moving car. I said, I'm going to buy it back from you and give you the $2,000 option money back. Then we had a four-hour rap session, <laughs> which was very productive. They didn't make the movie. They just continued to hold the option, and I'm hoping they don't make the movie unless they write a decent script. Wow. Yeah. Well, that's the other version. I want to believe they had a four-hour rap battle. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, what's funny is he, he's saying he threatened to beat him up, and they went on to talk about it for four hours. So, I, I I wonder if he's exaggerating just how how rough he was on Jeff. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm pretty sure he is. Yeah, I'm thinking. I don't I don't well, see Phil, I don't Phil is, is, is the, I mean uh, I think we've the seen threatening kind of guy. You know, no, but as we've seen throughout doing this, violence. he is uh, prone to embellish the truth. Right, um, and so we know that. This they spent two years on this before uh, Hampton Fancher, who origi- who eventually co-wrote the screenplay for the, the final movie, um, bought the option from them. In 19- I, don't, I don't know if co-wrote is the correct term. Yeah, he wrote the original screenplay. He that- wrote the original screenplay, but a lot of the scenes in the f- finished movie are word for word out of his script. So, scripts did this go through before production started? Not including the shooting script. Well, uh, Hap- Hampton Francher did um, multiple drafts before the one that was turned in that was the first working script that they bounced around to Hollywood was, I think, his third or fourth draft, and that's the one I read from 1980. And yeah, but then, didn't, oh, right, Dan O'Bannon did not write a script for this. No, he wrote Screamers. No, and that's a... That that I feel like is 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 an is an urban legend. I, I, he, he I always want to say that, he wrote a script for this, but it, it, he didn't. I, no, I do what, too. Yeah. <laughs> so what what happened was is that Dan O'Bannon was um, 
I think he like his interest in the stories that uh, are in um, we can remember it for you wholesale and him trying to shop that around is what I believe got PKD the interest in Hollywood in general. Like, because okay. Hollywood is that way. If, if um, one person's interested in the work of an author, then a lot of times that, you know, other works become interesting to Hollywood. Yeah. Cause they're like, why is that person interested? And so where did Dan O'Bannon and Philip K. Dick ever, were they friends or did they talk? I don't think they ever met. Okay. I don't know. I think that's, um, that's um, a Tessa question. We'll have to, we'll have to ask Tessa, but Mm. um, I, I don't know. I would imagine there, there was a good 10 year period between when, when he start when he started working on Second Variety and and all that, I think that there's a good likelihood that they did meet each other. Um, and I know he read, I know PKD read an early script for Second Variety for Screamers, so he he did read one of the scripts, and I remember reading that he liked it. Um, we'd have to go back to our episode on that and and see, but um, but yeah, so the Hampton Francher script, I I read the script. Um, and we'll get into like the differences, but there are a lot of scenes in the final movie that are word for word exactly like the, the original Hampton Francher script. Yes, Fancher. Uh <laughs> But the Hampton uh, Fancher script, I think the the 1981 is um, it's very different from the finished product. But there are entire scenes, the void comp test from the beginning. The first, the um, first scene where he meets Rachel, the the all the the scene between him and Rachel, most of the scenes between him and Rachel are exactly the same. The one in the apartment, the first one in the apartment, is the same. Uh, some of all the characters are there, Han- Hannibal Chu, uh, but instead of like it being in a freezer and a weird thing, it's like a nightclub, which reminded me of the world Jones made, hmm. actually. Um, right more than um but th- there are well, actually the nightclub scene in this in the movie reminded me of world jones made as well so yeah and it should be noted that hampton francher and david people peoples who um or is it peoples or peoples peoples um anyways they have a good relationship with each other and they got along and uh, Hampton Francher actually appreciated, even though he was upset at first that they were hiring another screenwriter. He he, a lot of the suggest he said that a lot of the suggestions that Ridley had made that he didn't think were practical that Peoples was able to Peoples Peoples was able to fix, um, and so he appreciated that. But but he did, and they did bring Hampton Francher back to Fancher. The, uh, Fancher to do the last rewrite. So, so he was a co-writer. He was still involved. They never like totally pushed him out. They just brought somebody else in to finish it. And David, uh, peoples, um, people should know, um, he's most famous for having written 12 monkeys and the unforgiven, which. Have you guys, have either one of you seen the, uh, uh the, what 12 monkeys is based on legitimate. The short, mm-hmm. yes, yes, I have. I have. I, it's a really great short film. I recommend it to anyone who is interested in Twelve Monkeys. Yeah, it's really cool, and um, 
I also have been inspired by this. I'm going to rewatch Unforgiven, and I also want to watch the Japanese remake as well because I've never seen that. Um, well, I've never seen that either. Yeah, but I, I watched Unforgiven a couple months ago. It stands it up. up? It's a really good movie. Yeah. yeah, it has one of my favorite lines of movie from a movie ever when he said, um, "You just shot an unarmed man. He should have been armed. Uh, <laughs> then he should have armed himself or something." Yeah, he should have been armed. Um, uh, no, that movie has that great line too, where he's like, "They should have thought about that before they hung my friend from the front of the saloon." Yeah, yeah, great yeah, movie. great, great movie. And uh, Hampton Fancher, of course, came back to work on the script for 2049, so he stayed uh, kind of in the. He he only made one. Hampton only made one other movie in 1999. He wrote and directed a thriller called minus man with owen wilson and janine garofalo which i have not seen but now i kind of want to see it um and that was 1999 so he didn't work much after this but um they, he did make his mark by doing this and uh so his script his first script and and larry kind of already spoiled this a little bit but he no, was, he did the he did he wrote the mighty quinn as well Oh yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. That's I like that movie a lot. Yeah. So he has a short filmography, but all quality stuff from. Yeah. Yeah. And so the thing about uh, Hampton Fancher's script is that it's not any closer to the novel than the finished movie is. Really? Oh, really? Yeah. It's not. It's it's also a noir, um, and. It has some really interesting things in it, but you did point out uh, correct. So I want to I want to ask. There's no uh, there's no mention of mercerism or any of those elements in the in his original screenplay. No, um, there no. there is not. There's no mercerism. There's no mood organs. But all the scenes that are the most faithful to the novel, like the owl, the yeah the empathy parts of the empathy chest, they're all in the first version of the screenplay. They all come from that. Okay. And I, I think it's unfair to cut Hampton out because so many of the scenes of the final movie are just word for word, exactly the same. And um, there's been a lot of, a lot made of Rutger Hauer um, improvising a lot of the Roy Batty dialogue and, yeah. and, that may be the case, but what's really interesting when you read the screenplay is even going back to the 1980 draft, a lot of Harrison Ford's dialogue is exactly the same, like word for word. Well, what what I read about the Rutger Hauer stuff is that he didn't so much improvise a lot, is that he just shortened a lot of the what was originally in the screenplay and and sort of make it less less uh I don't know, less for less screenwritery, less screenwritery and more character. Yeah. yeah. Right. Well, well, I mean, we, we've seen that, right? Like, have you ever heard a character talk? And I do this all the time with my girlfriend. We're sitting on the couch and a character starts talking. I go, no, that's, that's, that's a screenwriter talking. Yeah, like exactly. when you can tell the screenwriter is talking, yeah. it's like mm, tone it down. You, you kind of want it down Tarantino. If you have a part like that, you want an actor that can turn it into real life. I mean, that's the, the actor's job is to make it a real life person. Yes. Correct. So, uh, what, so, so there's some, some interesting notes about that first draft of the screenplay. Um, but you're right. Hampton 
uh, Fancher was the only person involved in the production of the movie who actually read to Android's dream of electric sheep. And to me, this goes against the grain of what we consider good filmmaking. We, we consider good filmmaking paying attention to the source material, knowing where it's coming from, making sure that you follow the beats of the source material, and uh, going from there. But this goes against that entirely. Yeah, in because fact, Ridley Scott told David Peoples not to read not to read the not to read the book. Yes. Yeah. Well, and- maybe because Ridley Scott was like, "We're not going to spend all this time with." But those electric ass animal wars. But no, he had never read you. the book. I mean, I, who knows if he even knew oh, about it. he didn't it. read it either. Nope. No, I didn't know that. Yeah. No, Ridley Scott did not read the book. And what's it's really annoying to me as a fan of Philip K. Dick and a fan of the novel, when you watch the bonus or supplementary material for all the different discs, how many times different actors involved make a point of saying, I didn't finish reading it. I didn't even, well, Ridley didn't finish reading it, so I didn't finish reading it. Down- the whole cast made up of me, baby. Just, <laughs> oh, fuck this. Right. Right. <laughs> right. Well, and and it actually annoyed me after a while because after like the third or fourth person said I didn't even finish it, I was like, well, fuck you then. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> well, they, well, I mean, they are actors. They're They're not Yes, a but, lot of actors don't want to get into something I, someone I, else's vision of what a character should be, so they don't get confused about it. Well, I think had the script maybe followed the book more, they might have been more motivated to do that. But since they probably read the script and knew that, oh, this isn't even going to be like the book, I'm not going to waste my time with it. Well, and when you read the book, the first thing that happens is, you know, he talks to his wife and goes out and pets a, a fake sheep. So oh, yeah. it's like I remember. Uh, okay, so, yeah, <laughs> maybe I remember. maybe I don't need to read this to know what the movie's about. You know, it's going to be one of these books. Okay. <laughs> um, so some things that are different in the um, so Rick Deckard is just in the original 1980s script. He's just come back from a job retiring some skin jobs in Alaska, hmm. um, and he comes back by train into San Angeles, which is the city that um, encompasses all of Southern California. Um, there, I like that. Yeah, there's... Yeah. there's um, yeah, in fact... You like it? I don't like the name. Yeah. It's dumb. Really? It's, it's perfect. That name is dumb. Or La Frisco. So, <laughs> uh, Sorry, David. Yeah, it's okay. So one thing that's that uh, is interesting to note about the 1980 draft is that there is voiceover, and there is noir detective. Um, that's right. Voiceover in this version of the script, and in fact, during this opening voiceover, there's a line: two hours earlier, I was drinking Aquavit with an Eskimo lady in Northeast Alaska. That's a tough change to make when he gets back to which is not rainy Los Angeles, San Angeles in the script, but like a heat, like humid, like, or more like it is in the, in the book. Yeah. And sandy and dry and yes. Gross. There's a part of a San Angeles in the, that a lot of the script takes place in that's called drop city, which is the underground part of Los Angeles. And the thought was that when they when he when Hampton Fancher wrote this first script was is that they weren't going to have a lot of money to do exteriors, 
So a lot of it had to take place inside. So he had this idea of putting most of Los Angeles underground to get away from the heat, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, Makes there's sense. some funny commercials for replicants um, about like how you can, you know, buy your slave replica or slave Andy. And, and it's Andy's in this, in this script too. Like okay. the, so you can, you can buy an Andy to slave away and do all the hard work for you. There's these funny commercials, which I have to say was also a good choice getting rid of Andy's and androids. Yes, and that was David Peebles who who did that, and I'll have more on that later. Um, Hannibal Chew's Black Market Shop was not um, the ice, like, in the cooler. Like I said, it was a party, kind of like uh, World Jones made. So was was Fancher just a fan of this book, or was he a PKD fan? I think he was just a fan of this book. Uh, I don't see anything where he's talking about other PKD stuff, but... Uh, one of the lines that I liked in this script was, um, and one of the scenes that's exactly the same as the scene with Emmett Walsh, where he's talking to him, but there was a line that was a little different, where he says something to Deckard about basically, why haven't you gotten off world? Like, why why haven't you gone to one of the colonies? And Deckard says, I make a lot of complaints about this fucking city, but I'd rather be here than there. Um, and I liked that line a lot. Um, Although, uh, I, I want to mention here that uh, I got to work with M.M. Walsh uh, back in like the, the late 90s. And uh, that guy is super cool. Yeah. And he was the doctor in Fletch who stuck his hand up Chevy Chase's ass. So. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, no, he's great he's in Blood a, Simple. I mean, that's a, a yeah. great movie. But. Yeah. He's, he's a great actor. Um, uh, and he's incredible in his one scene. And what's interesting is, uh, like Harrison Ford, a lot of his lines and dialogue were in the first draft of the first screenplay, word for word. And um, it's interesting because none of the Roy Batty lines are the same. And which, which leads me to a couple years ago, Rob Lowe was on Mark Marin, and he was talking, he was making fun of another actor, not by name, but he was clearly talking about Rudger Hauer. Because yeah, we talked they, yes, about I remember that episode. Yes. Yeah. And he was talking about the fact that uh, Rudger Hauer refused to learn his lines when they did the Salem's Lot miniseries. Right. <laughs> and that when Rudger Hauer, and he didn't say Rudger Hauer by name, but he said that the guy, when, when he was confronted about the fact that he wasn't learning his lines, started going on about how I have one of the greatest improv scenes in the history of cinema, i.e. the tears in, in the rain. Right. So, Right. And so what's funny is when you read the script, you can see that like Harrison Ford's learning his lines, Emmett Walsh is learning his lines and doing and delivering them perfect. <laughs> and Roy Batty's dialogue is like all over the place. <laughs> the question is, is it better the way he did it or how it's written in the script? Well, in this case, I would say it is better, but I'm not saying that it works for for every time because every role every time. Yeah, cuz he was definitely not good in that Salem slot movie. Um but uh so yeah, I don't know. Yeah, well, Rutger Hauer has just as many bad films as good films. So 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 one of the things about Hannibal Chew's black market replicant shop/crazy slash bar 
is there is a um, a razor blade eater named the Amazing Rama, just to give you like how kind of weird and different than James Hong in a in a fucking freezer in the final version. So that's very different. Um, there's lots of random just uh, noir voiceovers. Some of it is info dumpy and moves the story forward, but a lot of it is just random. Like there's this one. Yeah, that- that's what I heard about the sorry, David, but that's what I heard about the voiceover uh, from from Fancher was that he what they say is he wrote beautiful like soliloquies that didn't have anything to do with uh, moving the plot forward or the way they they wanted to do it at the end, but they were they were really great in in showing character and the world and just ethereal things that didn't matter, but they were really well written. That's what I heard. Some of them were, and some of them I really liked, but then they have some that are like this one that is in the middle of a foot chase. Um, and he's, and, and then like the scene ends and the action scenes over. And then he just says, I knew a cop once who was involved in a high speed chase. They shot out one of his tires and he went off a cliff at 150 miles an hour. They found him in the morning with a broken skull, six fractured, Six fractured ribs and second degree burns. On the way to the hospital, he made a play for the nurse, and it was like, "That's awesome." <laughs> Nothing to do with the story, but that has, that has zero to do with anything. With anything, <laughs> yeah. But I'm not totally against it. But I just, I that one stuck out to me because I just laughed at how it. He's just like, yeah, and he made a play for the nurse, and. Uh, when you look at some of the people they considered casting for this role, uh, you know, for a long time, uh, Fancher, which, which role for, for Decker. Okay. Like uh, one of his original picks was, um, was Clint Eastwood. Um, but uh, you know, who Ridley Scott came the closest to was Dustin Hoffman, which makes zero sense. Um, really? Yep. Yep. Um, yeah, as a hard-boiled detective, I can't really see it. I mean, he was great in in uh, Marathon Man, but right, that's more of a victimy type character, and not not right. a brooding detective. So um, that's all I got on the 1980s script. But I do think um, it's a good it's it's a fun script to read. Um, it's not. I definitely think the finished film is better. Uh, there's certain things like um, James again flying in the face of of the uh, the accepted logic, right? Well, Peoples did reach out to Fancher and did talk to him about what the book meant to him and like what you know what he was trying to say, and he retained a lot of the scenes that the scenes that are the most connected to the novel uh, because it's easy to say that this this movie has nothing to do with the novel but that's not true they're, they're yeah. <laughs> it's subtle but it's not like i robot or something like that you know like i yeah. robot has absolutely nothing to do with the source material at all uh, and also but sucks. it has will smith sucks. i didn't um, like it either it's it's bad will smith and uh the other guy the bad guy i don't even remember he's also the bad guy in la confidential fuck the old guy. James Cromwell? Plays the, James yeah, Cromwell, James thank Cromwell. you. 
Yeah, I, I don't hate iRobot as much as you guys, but it was a disappointment considering that it's the same director as uh, Dark City. You'd, you'd hope for more. But yeah, um, but, uh, but yeah um, so Fancher, as far as that script goes, I did really appreciate it. I'm glad I got to read and see like the evolution of it. I do think the final movie is better. Uh, Peoples came on and did a lot of the things that, you know, like Fancher said that that Ridley Scott had wanted him to do that Fancher didn't think were going to make sense. And some of the characters that get invented and some of the things like uh, Edward James Olmos's character is not in the, the 1980 version. Um, the storyline with uh, Chris and um, Sebastian gets moved back. It's in the Fancher script, but it gets moved back and shortened. And, oh, really? Uh, one scene... Oh, in the scene where he's like, I'm from the moral... Where he goes to the lady with the snake and all that, that's in the first 1980s script as well. Okay. Uh, yeah. And... Well, that's that's kind of similar to what's in the novel. How okay. he, he approaches the uh, the singer, opera singer woman. Yeah. And, well, yeah, because she's a replicant. Yeah. Yeah. And so the term replicant was people's creation... Uh, his daughter was a scientist and she had been talking about cell replication and he, he and Ridley Scott talked about how the term Android was overused. So, um, so that was the thing. Um, I have less to say, or I did less research about the actual movie because I think there's a lot of documentaries and a lot of things out there. And there's only so much we can say about that, but I do think that that these aspects and how PKD interacted with, with the movie is is really interesting because uh, as we know he only got to see 20 minutes finalized before he died um i know i think he got to see like rough parts of the rest of it but they had only actually wrapped and finished the opening which is some of the best parts of the movie as far as if you're only going to see a little bit of the movie that's a good part to see uh yeah, all those street scenes and the uh that opening shot, which is incredible. Oh, yeah. Over the cityscape. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I get chills. Even now, I've seen the movie, like, what, 30 times? I still get chills in that that opening shot, just seeing all the, the flames coming out of the smokestacks. And the, it's just great. Yeah. Yeah. Um... Yeah, it's 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 really incredible, and um, it's quite of a, a feat of achievement of production. I mean, we have to remember at this point, really, Scott did have Alien, but that was really his only big hit. You know, at this point, um, he hadn't he wasn't the Ridley Scott that we know now um, with the the power that. I mean, he, the Ridley Scott we dislike now, or some of us at least. <laughs> I don't totally uh, feel that way, but. Um, uh, and I, what was the last movie Ridley Scott did? Well, he directed the pilot. Covenant. He he wrote no. Uh, I'm not sure, but he directed the pilot for Raised by Wolves, which but, I hey last movie which he you made? liked Covenant. Covenant. <laughs> <laughs> oh, which yeah. Dave and I saw together in theaters, and it was bad. Um. <laughs> yeah. Covenant. Uh, I, I actually, I'm a defender of Prometheus, but well, well that's for another. We, oh, you, we know that that's gonna happen on this show. We're gonna do a Prometheus episode, bonus episode. <laughs> uh, 
So what are the now? Things- let's talk a little bit about Tony Scott. So oh yeah, well we can talk about Tony Scott all day. So the thing about this production is it was a twenty-two million dollar budget, which is pretty big for the time, but not astronomical. Um, uh, having Harrison Ford, of course, attached was was very helpful in moving the movie forward. It has a pretty good cast. What's really interesting is that the movie was. Um, I think it was set up at a different studio and before Warner brothers like picked it up at the end, um, Alan Ladd's production company had to save it from, it was going to, the film was going to be canceled. And if you don't know the name, Alan Ladd, Alan Ladd was the head of 20th century Fox when he greenlit a little movie called star Wars. And he was the only person <laughs> in Hollywood that believed in star Wars. So Alan Ladd, has some serious sci-fi cred, but also serious Hollywood cred. Kind of a big deal. It's kind of a big deal. But another interesting name that is attached to this is it's one of the rare English language movies that has a production credit for Run Run Shaw, the one of the brothers behind Shaw Brothers Studios in Hong Kong, mm-hmm. um, which is really interesting. Now, I don't know exactly how Run Run Shaw got involved, but... Um, from best I can tell, he what he put money in to get um, domestic rights in China um, to release it in Asia, and uh, but run, the Shaw brothers didn't do a ton of science fiction, although they did do uh, Inframan, which I think is, is super is is great cheesy sci fi movie. In answer to your about, question, Anthony, it's easy it's easy watching. What Ridley Scott's last directed movie was. All the money in the world, which was the uh, is that where they was that where they they, they digitally removed Kevin Spacey? That Correct. is exactly the movie. Yeah, yeah. that is exactly. Yeah, I never saw it because it sounded boring as shit. It's uh, actually it's not a bad movie. I mean, I don't know if I yeah I saw that one. It, it's the story is interesting. All right, so the production uh, was not super expensive, but they obviously spent a lot of money and time and detail on the special effects and the models. Um, those of us who I lived in Portland and uh, at movie madness, we used to have, they, they'd have, they have at the video store in Portland, they have a prop museum and they had some of the models from blade runner. And it was really cool. Cause they had, cool. yeah, one of the buildings um, intact at movie madness. And it's cool to see, you know what the those models look like and what's really cool is if you watch the 4k or the blu-ray versions that are out um it's amazing how well the special effects in this movie hold up well uh, if you're watching the uh the final what is it called the final version final yeah the final cut it's all been digitally redone yeah all the, everything's been brightened everything's been repaired and mistakes taken out all kinds of stuff has been has been redone yeah and if you watch like for example they reshot they took out the um the bad um stunt lady double from the uh the breaking of the glass scene and they they actually refilmed her face and yeah they for the uh for the the digital part where he's looking at the photo i i read that they they actually put Joanne Woodward's face on the on that on that picture instead Cassidy. of it's Joanne Cassidy. Joanna Cassidy, yeah, yeah. whatever. Joanna Cassidy's uh, face on that picture 
instead of some woman that was clearly not her. <laughs> yeah. Um, true. Um, and there's all kinds of stuff like that in the movie. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the cast. Um, what do you guys think about um, Harrison Ford as as Deckard? I, I don't I it's think the it, part Harrison Ford was made to play. Because really? frankly, frankly, Harrison Ford is not a great actor. Well, Harrison no, Ford but but plays, he's charismatic and he's good looking. Yes. In much in the way the same way people say that, oh, I don't like Will Smith. He's not a great actor. Maybe not, but he's charismatic and he does a good job with the roles but that Will he chooses. Smith, and I Will think, Smith, every once in a while, when he decides to act, he is really good at it. Yeah, he was a Harrison Ford oh, decides there. to act. He's, yeah, he's the good. same. He's good, but he's not really, really good. Like Especially now, not now. Coast, if you mm-hmm. watch the Mosquito Coast or regarding Henry, the, he's really he's good in those movies. But you wouldn't say like he's on a level with Marlon Brando or anything. You know? No, um, but, but and now he just uh, he's like, go ahead, David. I think that this role and Indiana Jones are kind of roles that he they're kind of made for him. Yeah, they're made, he's made to play these roles. Yeah, and I think I think he is really good as Deckard. I can't really see anybody else in it. I don't really like him as much as Deckard in Twenty Forty Nine. He's one of my least favorite aspects because he didn't, I, I think, cause I think he didn't want to be there. Yeah, yeah. I think he didn't want to be there. Don't you hate that part of the of Twenty Forty Nine that he's there at all? Well, we can, yes, I, I actually think it does. It's kind of fan servicey, and I don't really enjoy it. But it's also very evident that Harrison Ford doesn't want to be there. He delivers all the lines flatly, and he couldn't even be bothered to wear anything beyond what he showed up to set in that day. <laughs> but I wore this fucking t shirt. You're gonna shoot me in this fucking t shirt and jeans, okay? Yeah, and for the Star Wars movies, they're like, here, just put the Han Solo vest on them. <laughs> well. I would have to, and we're going to rewatch 2049 eventually. I'd have to watch it again. But my last memory of it was that I didn't think it ruined the movie or didn't take me out of the movie. I'm not saying it ruined the movie, David. What I'm saying is that it, it seemed unnecessary. Yeah, I, I would have had less of Deckard and tried to minimize that it, if, if I was doing it. But at the same time, like, I think in this movie, he's great. Um, and I think <coughs> how uncomfortable and what a crappy time he was having actually comes out in the movie. <laughs> yeah. It's great because it should be uncomfortable. There's there's a couple things I noticed this time that I hadn't noticed before. Um, I like that after he gets in the spinner and is heading to the police station that he's still eating his noodles, um, which I had never <laughs> noticed before. Um, and I love the, the use uh, or um, I, I just think that um, and it was interesting for me to see how um, he was, I, I guess I, you always know that actors are delivering lines from the script, but to see like how well he was translating and performing the actual dialogue as written was uh, in this time that I saw it was, was quite a, a revelation for me. Yeah. You, you watch the scenes uh, with a, uh, with what's her face with uh, Rachel with Rachel and and they're, I mean he's he's stellar in those scenes. Yeah, just the emotion he he actually puts forth. He, I'm surprised it's Harrison Ford. You know, I'm not used to seeing that much emotion coming out of him. 
It Why is- was there never a Hannibal Chew spinoff? That's <laughs> what I want. I don't know. I don't know. That uh, that would be great. Anyway, yeah. go on. Busy. He was busy filming Low Pan for Big Trouble in Little China. <laughs> uh, but uh, I will say uh, we don't have much. We don't really have any quotes from PKD talking specifically about Harrison Ford. But it had to have been a big deal to have Han Solo. And a year after Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark, to have um, Empire Strikes Back. Yeah, Harrison Ford be in your movie. Um, so I'm sure PKD was was excited about that. And definitely better casting than, can you imagine this movie with Dustin Hoffman? Because <laughs> that's who Ridley Scott wanted. I don't know. I, you know, Dustin Hoffman is one of those actors that can do almost anything. But, uh, you know... It's hard to see him in this role, even even as good as he is. If they played it closer to the novel, I could would, see that Deckard being played by Dustin Hoffman, oh, but not yeah, this yeah, Deckard. You have a point there. Yeah, if it was if it was made based more on the novel. Yeah, yeah, yeah because in the novel that Deckard's a little more kind of I don't want to say nebbish, but he is. Oh, yeah, he's he is more of a sad sack. Sad sack. Yeah, like a nebbish sad sack. Yep. Um, so we do have PKD quotes on two of the members of the cast, <clears throat> uh, Anthony, uh, specifically on Rutger Hauer first. So PKD on Rutger Hauer. I was looking at the stills of him and I said, oh, my God, this is the Nordic Superman that Hitler said would come marching out of the laboratory. This is the blonde beast that the Nazis were creating. And of course, the origin of the book, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, was my research into the Nazis for the man in the high castle. Yeah. Yeah. And so what he means by that is that the original inspiration for Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep was thinking about the concept of empathy and the inability for artificial humans to feel empathy. And he was thinking about the Nazis and like why they lost their ability. The uber mensch. Yeah. And, or yeah, the, noted Hollywood heartthrob Rutger Hauer. <laughs> hey, he did. Well, he Hall. is sort of the Aryan ideal. I mean, that's kind of. Sure. But I mean, did you guys see him in Split Second? <laughs> or Hobo with a Shotgun? Uh, hey, Ally, that's a great movie. But yeah, go yeah. on, David. Well, and this was before uh, he did do the leading man thing in um, in Lady Hawk, which I recently rewatched. And uh, yeah, but that wasn't in uh, that was in what year did that come out? Eighty four, eighty seven. Oh, was it really that late? Wow, I think so. I, I guess eighty four was the Hitcher Hitchhiker or whatever it was. The that was great. He was. And that's a fantastic film. Yeah. Um, as far as Lady Hawk, I recently rewatched it, and I personally found it very. I did not live. I did not hold up, and the oh, the cringe factor is in the soundtrack for me. The soundtrack is is super terrible. And it was funny. I a uh, friend of the show, Seth Heasley from Who Goes There, uh, recently was like, "Oh, I love that soundtrack," and I'm just <laughs> I I actually like the soundtrack, but just not with the movie. <laughs> okay, I see what you're saying. It does not fit the movie. It's one of yeah. the worst. Yeah soundtracks for for not fitting of the movie yeah right <laughs> Lady Hawk. um yeah i did watch that a couple months ago and i was really excited to watch that in willow and then um uh lady hawk was so bad i still haven't watched willow <laughs> I was like oh i don't know that one didn't hold up um but uh we also have a pkd quote on sean young 
PKD on Sean Young. Sean Young, who plays Rachel, I've never seen her act. I've seen Harrison Ford act. I've seen Rucker Hauer act. But when I saw those stills of her, I was blown away. I said, that's Rachel. You could have hung pictures of a hundred different women and I would have unerringly picked out that one as Rachel. That's not a simulation of Rachel. That is Rachel. They went and found her. It's the femme fatale belle dom, belle Bell Dom Sands Mercy, oh, PKD, you're tripping me up here, that I eternally write about. And now I've seen a photograph of her and I know that she exists. I've shown the pictures to several of my friends and they all agree that that's exactly how they imagined her. Yeah, that makes sense. We knew. I mean, I sort of, I don't know. Tell me how you feel about this. This is sort of the science. This movie has sort of the science fiction version of a, of the Gilligan's Island thing with, between Ginger and Marianne. Like what kind of what kind of person are you? Do you prefer Pris or Rachel? Is the I same think, question as do you prefer Ginger or Marianne? Well, I think you know my answer. I think you both yeah. know my answer. It's Pris. Yeah, but David. I think that's that's yeah. yeah. I, I I think it's fundamentally the same question, don't you? Yeah, I agree. And I'm definitely a Rachel guy myself. So, David, uh, uh, I don't know. They sort of do represent... David James, like, the Voight-Kampf machine is my choice. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking of Robin Wright's character in the sequel, but... Uh, Fair. They do sort of represent a certain archetype each character does. Yeah, no, I... I, I, um, I yeah, that's hard for me to say, because I actually think it's, it's almost like a mood thing of which character I find uh, more intriguing, but... Uh, I also I, I'm also just more interested in the nuances of Rachel's being somebody who is um, who's meant to think she was human and have memories and has to come to grips with in the in the movie finding out that she is an artificial person right. um, is is really interesting and unfortunately I would say one of the few things about Blade Runner is that I. I think they examined that, but I think they they could have done more. Really? That I do like that. You know, there are the scenes where she says to him, like, you know, are you going to retire me? Are you going to? And and a lot of that is all in the Hampton Fancher, the first 1980s script, right? Is all there, and and I do think that that gets to the heart of of the question of empathy. And those are some of the scenes that most. Uh, reflect the novel it's not you know I mean obviously and it's little moments of world building um, that I think are really neat in in the movie like when of course it's not a real owl and um, and all those moments are so brilliantly done in this movie it's one of the things that I I like that going back as far as the 1980s that's a a difference isn't it that uh, that I kind of enjoyed in this in the movie was that originally in the book, she says it is a real owl. Right. And in this, she right away says, of course not. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that, 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 you know, um, oh, and one of, one of, and, and maybe it's because I'm writing a science fiction screenplay right now. So I'm thinking a lot about the little details of world building a lot, but, uh, well, there's a, I mean, there's so much little detail in this movie about world building that, yeah, this is a, a playground for you in that sense. Yes. And the probably one of the best examples of that here, and I'm about to sneeze. So 
one of the best examples of that. Um, and we got to talk about Bry- Byron James here in a little bit because um, ultimate that guy character actor who just shows up and plays like assholes. Um, <laughs> but in that first scene when um, he doesn't know what a tortoise is and he explains to him what a turtle is, that mm-hmm. is such amazing world building because it tells you everything. Like, yeah, that the animals are extinct in this world, that people don't even know what a turtle is. Like, you know, yeah. and it's not even that weird. And that was some, that was some excellent, excellent Great scene. Yeah. Excellent world building writing. Yeah. And By- Byron James, I, I do want to point him out. Um, uh, if, if he's a guy who, if you say his name, no one knows who he is. But as soon as you see his face, you're like, oh, yeah. He's oh, yeah. <laughs> like a thousand assholes. Right. Um, oh, that guy from The Fifth Element. Oh, yeah. I remember him. Yeah. Or Enemy Mind. Oh, that, that guy from, yeah. uh, what is it? Another 48 Hours. I remember him. <laughs> yeah. He just consistently played assholes. And so, and uh, I did read that when he came in to read for the part that he got the part because he actually freaked out the casting director by like staying in character through like coming in and talking to him. And so, well, like I said, on our, on our, uh, androids episode, he does have my favorite line in the whole movie, which is wake up time to die. <laughs> I yeah. love that line. You know, it's great. And he also has the, uh, let me tell you about my mother. Yeah. Line, <laughs> um, which is great. Um, that I will say, even though most of that scene is word for word in the uh, Hampton Fancher script, the um, the uh, let me tell you about my mother was not. That was not really. Yeah, that's one of the, that scene is word for word almost exactly the same, except for that. And then one thing that was really interesting, just to show you the difference in how a filmmaker chooses to do things, is that um, the scene where. Uh, Deckard gives the Voight-Kampf test to Rachel is almost exactly written the same. The dialogue's all the same, but uh, Ridley Scott chose to move the camera away from Rachel during the moment when right after she says, are you testing me to see if I'm a replicant or a lesbian? That line's in the the Hampton Pantra script. It says Android, but it says, are you testing me? And then... But it's also uh, in the novel, so... Right. So the, and then, then the camera pulls away and then he cuts away. But in the script, there was a line where um, you realize that the test, that the picture that she's talking about with the with the other woman, she's in a, she's laying on a bearskin rug like in the novel. Right. And uh, Ridley Scott cut away before she said that, which kind of takes away like how it relates to the void comp test. So in a way it's, I think it's kind of a mistake. It's a nitpick. Well, so, so does the mother question in the opening scene? I mean, they're both, we, we know from the novel that these are animal questions for the most part, where they're, they're searching for empathy as Terrell says, uh, they're looking for reactions, but uh, we we do get Rachel's lack of empathy when she doesn't answer the dog question. Right. So I, I can see just wanting to get through that part. And I mean, once you hit, are you asking if I'm a such and such or a lesbian, you know, uh, sort of, do you need the, do you need the bearskin part? No, you don't need it, yeah. but, but it, it, it might, 
thematically make more sense. But it's just interesting to note that that's where that he cut the scene, and um, and just a little bit of behind the scenes from where the script was. But wasn't that beautiful? I mean, like the just the cinematography of that scene with the shade coming down and the 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 distance from the desk and oh man, everything about that scene is beautiful. Um, Every scene in this movie is beautiful. Well, that's... Every scene you could take and put in a frame. It's yeah. a beautifully done movie. Right. And one thing that's interesting on that is that the cinematographer, whose name is escaping me, um, he... Yeah, he... He had Parkinson's disease. He had Parkinson's that he died of later. Yeah, and he finished the movie in a wheelchair, actually. Um and so it's but he was brilliant i mean yeah it's a brilliant final performance as a cinematographer and i'm sorry i'm i'll, I'll get you I'll, I'll get the name okay so um but i think he deserves a, a strong mention here yeah so anyways i don't think we need to review the movie scene by scene i think most everybody's seen it oh god please let's not do that so what i would say is what I want to ask both of you and try to get our thoughts on for a second is how is watching Blade Runner different now that we've spent two years doing this podcast and thinking about PKD? Did you have a different experience watching it this, this last time for you, Larry, that was this morning for me, it was last night and Anthony, you watched a couple weeks ago. Well, how is it different watching it now knowing what you know about PKD? Did it make a difference in how you watched it? Anthony. Yeah, because I'm looking for little Easter, like little PKD Easter eggs, little things. And I'm also watching it with the eye of how would Dick have looked at this adaptation of his work, getting to know him through his writing. I often wonder if he would even like any of the adaptations that they did of his work. And I know he liked the first, what, 20 minutes that he saw of it, at least the visuals. But I, I so often find myself asking, do we see androids the way dick had intended us to see them you know like because i think we look at the androids with a lens of empathy and sympathy that dick didn't have for them and i could be wrong but i i oftentimes wonder that and then in a lot of other ways i think i'm just watching a movie that's riffing off of his source material and doing its own thing right yeah and i definitely felt that this time um the last time I watched, well, probably not the last time I watched Blade Runner, but I know the last time I read Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, I watched Blade Runner right afterwards. And because I had had it written, I had it so much in my head that they were nothing alike, you know, or like they're so different that the last, that particular time that I watched it, I was like, well, there's actually more of the novel in here than I thought, right? Yeah. And then this time I had the, the exact kind of opposite stance where like I, the last time I thought there was more of it than I realized. And this time, especially reading the script, I was like, wow, um, there is a, not a lot. There's a lot missing, you know, and that's fine. And there are things like if I was, they made the right choices. There's, there's no, the mood organ thing, maybe could have fit into some scenes of it, but the Mercer not stuff, really. the Mercer stuff doesn't need to be there. It, it doesn't, you know, well, I you think know, like it that would stuff be... to begin with. <laughs> like, I, I, I think I recall you not liking Mercerism, even in the novel. 
Yeah, I wasn't like a huge fan of it, but um, the graphic novel adaptation, which is like a faithful adaptation, would be interesting to see because I do think there is a way to faithfully adapt Do Android's Dream that would be a very different thing. And I'm glad we have the Blade Runner that we do, you know. Yeah, I prefer it. Yeah. I, well, I, I think don't think I adapt- would like to see it. I don't think I would enjoy a direct adaption of the book. Right. I think it depends on who does it. it to adapt it would be to fundamentally change how we view Blade Runner. Like, because it's not Blade Runner, and Blade Runner's really not do Android's Dream of Electric Sheep. Yeah. It's an adaptation, but it stands off on its own, and so does the book. So, realistically, a more faithful adaptation, I personally think, wouldn't even count as a Blade Runner remake. Mm hmm. That's true. Personally. Yeah. Yeah. Um, maybe what you could do is something like Dr. Sleep. Um, and what Dr. Sleep did was. Suck. Uh, <laughs> oh, I like that movie. What Dr. Sleep did was. Get the bed in the third act. <laughs> All right. Uh, I like Dr. Sleep. But what Dr. Sleep did was. Energy vampires, really? Try to be a sequel to. Uh, both the book and the movie, which are, are very different. It's a very hard thing to do, huh? It's a tough thing to do, and I think that Mike Flanagan struck the balance in between personally, um, but I was a fan. I I was very on board until we went back to the Overlook Hotel and it turns into a goofy-ass Goosebumps movie. <laughs> awful. All the stuff at the Overlook Hotel is awful. But right. this is this is not a podcast about Dr. Sleep. <laughs> no, it was Jordan Cronenweth who had Parkinson's. Eh. Yeah. Uh, and uh, all right. So I do have a quote here, Anthony, from uh, Norman Spinrad um, about comparing the movie and the film. And I do think that this this quote is pretty interesting. The core of the novel, the essential story, is the core of the film. The intellectual level of the screenplay and its perceived audience are both much closer to the intent of Dick than to action-adventure. And the theme and its mode of expression are intellectually and spiritually true to the novel to an impressive degree. Um, one thing that I noticed, too... Uh, Wait, who was that from? Spinrad. Spinrad. Okay. Um, one thing I noticed in this version, uh, or this viewing of it, um, also was that one of the things I like is, um, and this has the two with the difference between Harrison Ford and Rugger Hauer as actors, that that entire last battle between Roy Patty and Deckard, like Batty doesn't shut the fuck up and Deckard doesn't say a fucking <laughs> word. True. He doesn't say one word. He does not it's say true. a word. He does not give a shit about Yeah, Batty likes to hear himself talk. Yeah. Um, and, uh, so I do think that that's interesting. Now, you know what's really interesting is that no one's ever tried to make a prequel about the uh, replicants on in the off-world colonies, and there's never been a story set in the Blade Runner universe in the off-world colonies, whether it's a graphic novel or uh, animation or whatever. Is that something either of you guys would I, like? I feel like something someone's doing something with that. I feel like there's something I heard something or read something about them doing some off-world. Blade Runner stuff. Maybe in the coming TV uh, you, show? 
I don't know. I think you. T- I think I talked about how Volume Two of the graphic novel takes place off world. Maybe but that it has. N- but it has nothing to do with the, the original replicants leaving. It has nothing to do with the Nexus Six replicants and yeah. their kind of moving from where the but colony. It, it, to but there is a the part Angeles. that's on the on the colonies, right? In the comic, yeah, or yes. something like that. Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. That the the right. entire Volume Two for the most part takes place off world yeah um okay. would I, I i don't really give a shit about prequels i i don't need to know the story of i know what happened they came okay i get it i i don't need to be shown all the things all the time uh, and i notoriously hate prequels so oh, for really? me i'm not i wouldn't be that interested you know what i would like to see is um i would like to see something that was set in uh hong kong in this world like Hong Kong of this world. Well, if we're but if we're talking about just things we'd like to see. Well, then done you should read William Gibson. That's basically, <laughs> basically what, what it is. That aren't Blade Runner specific, like aren't specific to the Blade Runners. I would love something that is more focused on the creators of the replicants. That would be my jam. Like more, more about the Terrell Corporation. Yeah, and the, 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 those responsible the for designing the actual replicants and things like that. That would be interesting to me. Okay, so we do have a little bit of notes on and quotes of what PKD thought. Because this is, this is the only time of all the... So we always... We have this segment that we do on the show, Would Dick Like It? Um, and this is the only time that we actually have a few quotes um from pkd i recognized it immediately it was my own interior world they caught it perfectly i couldn't believe wait hold on there we go that first quote when he says i recognized it immediately there was a story about the special effects of the film and an upcoming thing on the news and um and he was this quote was him reacting to seeing the the news story about the special effects I couldn't believe what I was reading. It was simply sensational. Still Hampton Fancher's screenplay, but miraculously transfigured, as it were. The whole thing had simply been rejuvenated in a very fundamental way. After I finished reading the screenplay, I got the novel out and looked through it. The two reinforce each other, so that someone who started with the novel would enjoy the movie, and someone who started with the movie would enjoy the novel. Oh, PKD, I do not agree. I was amazed that people could get some of those scenes to work. It taught me things about writing that I didn't know. And then he wrote to Chris Hummel, and I uh, I apologize, I don't know who Chris Hummel is, and I Googled, and I uh, don't know who that person find anything. So if anybody knows, you can put a comment. Chris, I haven't yet seen the film in complete form, but I did see about 20 minutes of it, and it is super. I'm not kidding. The opening scene is simply beyond belief. It is likely that in late February we'll be shown a rough cut of the total film. But they're running behind schedule, I understand. Blade Runner is truly a dynamic film. All right. Very true. And uh, Russell uh, Galen, the agent, was trying to pressure PKD to go see the sets and to visit the sets. So that's the next quote. 
The sets I'm sure are marvelous. Russell called me up and said, you've got to go up there. Well, in a way, it's a Chinese finger trap. If the sets are that good, maybe I'll go up there and fall into the mode that exists now in science fiction, where the special effects and the sets are everything. And as an author, I can't afford, as a practical matter, to adopt that ideology, because it reduces the author to merely setting up a simple plot outline in which special effects can be brought in. His job is very much a means to an end, rather than an end in itself. Ridley Scott is a director who has a visual sense rather than a narrative sense. This is not a matter of insulting Ridley Scott. He thinks visually. And of course, this is why he's in movies. It's perhaps the way it should be. But I am an author, and I think in narrative terms, in terms of a storyline. Listen, if you want to make fucking sets out of anything I've written, invite me to the set. I'm happy to show up. Yeah. Yeah, I thought that was a weird quote. But, um... I think Dick just doesn't like Hollywood. That's, I think that's really what it comes down to. Well, frankly, you know, looking at sets and stuff, uh, you can understand it's not very interesting to everyone. And, and it's just a bunch of stuff. If you've ever walk, walked through a, a movie studio or anywhere where they make sets, it's kind of cool, but it's also kind of boring. I disagree. So. I always have a good time, but I like that shit, so... Yeah, I when I was a production assistant, I loved being on set. Building a set is fun. Uh, seeing how they do it, seeing the finished product, and having been there and knowing what it looked like on the other side, I think is awesome. I love it. Hire me as a production Terrible. assistant. Terrible job. Well, two different, two different views, my man. Yes, I have carried bat- trash bags full of bagels to set, and that was my job. But I've also set up the lighting rigs. That was also my job at one point. So also boring. What, David? Well, Larry built sets for stage. Yeah, I know. And, I know. And he and I have different opinions. Yeah. I worked on Babylon 5, for fuck's sake. <laughs> That's true. So, um, look, uh, the, that, that was just a weird quote. But uh, one thing that I did want to mention before I forget, I meant, meant to mention this in the David Peoples part, he also did write this the screenplay for um, Soldier. No, really? Yeah. You know, um, I've never seen that movie all the way through. I, I kind of hate Anthony missing this part because it's kind of funny. Um, but he says that in his mind, Soldier takes place in the Blade Runner universe, which makes me kind of want to see it again. Yeah, right. Um, but well, maybe, it, maybe it could be a, a, a dick-like suggestion if it really seems like it if it holds up because i haven't seen it since back in the day and i don't rem- i remember it being good but it's also a paul ws anderson and- i love paul paul ws anderson he's he is raw action and i like that about him unapologetic yeah i did like event horizon although i don't know how well it holds up but um but i did like the tv show he did a while back um I did think that was the one for YouTube. I actually thought was. Well, I I don't know what what that was. Uh, I don't remember what it was called either. Um, so, um, I liked his Death Race movies, and I enjoy the Resident Evil movies. Yeah, I wasn't down for the Death Race movies because Death Race uh, two thousand is one of my favorite movies, and I, I, <laughs> I. I didn't like the change in vibe, but uh, but if he says uh, Soldier and Kurt Russell takes place in the same universe as Blade Runner, that that is that is interesting. Um, in his mind, anyways, it's in the same universe as Blade Runner, whether it's canon or not. 
All right. So um, the last section uh, we always do is, would we do it differently? Um, and that's kind of... No, we didn't do much comparing. <laughs> oh, between the two? Yeah, if you want to do a little bit more comparing, I, I think... Um, I mean, obviously, the elements of the the noir elements are there in the novel, but they're not in the forefront like they are in the movie. Um, uh-huh. And uh, uh, what's going on there, Anthony? <laughs> I'm trying to get rid of this light band yeah. that's wrapped well, itself. Get a light mustache. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I can't. I can't get rid of it because these fucking blinds suck. Hold on. <laughs> Now, oh, that's, that's worse. <laughs> glowing. Are you pregnant? Right, you're glowing. Oh. Always pregnant with rage. <laughs> Just like I'm always hungry, hungry for justice. Are you? <laughs> no. Um. Yeah, I think the noir elements are there, but I don't. I don't think it's quite the complete noir. Turn your. Turn your. Uh, Turn your uh, laptop more so you're more centered. Better? Yeah, it's oh. better. Yeah, that works. Yeah, so the, I think the noir elements are there, but it's not in the forefront like like it is in the movie, in the novel, and there are so many other issues and things with, like, you know, obviously the the animal storyline is completely minimized in the film to the point where it's just i mean you kind of have to yeah yeah it just wouldn't it wouldn't play really well on film and i'm sure there's a lot of people that will disagree with that but how how do you film that and make it interesting and not goofy that's the key is to make it not goofy you could film it but it's gonna look pretty goofy well, what I would like to see a little bit more in PKD adaptations is not go full goof like he does in the books, but like just have like a tinge of it. Just like in this movie, there's the animal storyline is there, but only in hints with lines like the not knowing what a turtle is or is yeah. that owl real? I would like to see more and lines. The same with the snake. Is yeah. that a real snake? Yeah. You think I, I could like, afford that? I would like to see more of the PKD tongue in cheek in in subtle lines like that that are just slightly goofier and funny and, and right. just, you know we're that's a, again that's hard to do when you're because here's the thing there it's really stark the difference we have in science fiction subtlety really doesn't exist in science fiction film Mm-hmm. Like either you make a serious science fiction movie or you make a goofy science fiction movie. Either you make mom and dad save the world or save the earth or you make Blade Runner. There's no middle ground in there. Well, I will say that this unless, is unless you count Battlefield Earth, but I don't think that was intentionally funny. No, it wasn't. With this movie i just would like to have seen a little bit more of that that maybe just touch on the mercer thing touch on the animal thing just a little bit more in a way that has the 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 trademark pkd humor because i do think skinner darkly did that 
right? Scanner Darkly had moments that were laugh out loud funny, even though the movie was insanely weird. Yeah. They did it with scenes that were... But that was... Yeah, that one's really out there. Yeah. So... Yeah. I'm not uh, piggybacking on what David's... What, what, what was that? No, just to piggyback on what David's saying about what he'd like to see more in PKD. I'm assuming just PKD adaptations across the board. Right, David? Yeah. I think I don't know. I don't know if I need full goof, more more goof, but I I would like people to understand the properties a little bit better. In that, because here and I I brought this up before, when people are adapting PKD, I and whether it be a short film or later adaptations like Minority Report, you're really adapting. You're really cribbing from the vibe of Blade Runner. You're not really taking from from Dick's work. And what I'd like to see more is more of that, more of the constant questioning of spirituality and the relationship between man and machine. Um, a, a lot of the not knowing the self and, and learning who you are through all these kind of connections and interactions. Just sort of getting things. getting closer to PKD's themes. Yes, because let's be real. All these adaptations just want to reinvent Blade Runner. Yeah. And I'm bored with it. It's boring now. I'm yeah. over it. it yeah, well, there's so much get, more to pull from. Hopefully we get a chance to see something like that when we do Confessions uh because that's supposed uh, they made a movie of it, a French movie. So I hopefully it's a different kind of thing mm-hmm. when we see that. And, and uh, I I I agree. Not, and that's the thing. I think Electric Dreams does a pretty uh, does a better job of, of hitting some of those themes and hitting those beats. Yeah. Well, and then not everything's an action movie, right? There's yeah. plenty of Dick stories that aren't pew 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 pew. And I I think that well, and that's odd. Never, it's gets, rarely the the center of the PKD story is the action. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think the only that one PKD, that really so far that we've read that the action is the center. And I think this is why it's the least popular of his books is Vulcan's hammer. You know, that movie is or that book is about the action and it's not about the themes at hardly at all, but yeah, I still don't understand that they dislike for Vulcan's hammer. Um, but yeah, I don't either. And I don't understand that people might be coming it. out and saying that Cosmic Puppets isn't as bad as we said it was. It's off fucking awful. It's an awful <laughs> book. I, I miss the Ray character and the, the fake police station. I don't know if it's Ray. Whatever that, uh, the other, uh, the other Blade the Runner. Other, the other Blade Runner. I think they kind of, that became Gaff. And Gaff just became another oh, Blade Runner. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, but it kind of in a way, but in a way, but it, I agree that because that twist is actually pretty cool in in Do Androids Dream. Yeah, and I think that I, would I think lend it's... that would have lent more to what you're talking about the the elements of what you know the thematic elements of real versus what is real fake and mm-hmm. and what 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 has value and what doesn't, et cetera, et cetera. Well, but we do have the L.A. train station doubling as the police station, which was weird seeing Union Station. Yeah. <laughs> as the police station. Also, great use of the Bradbury building. Um, but again, filmed beautifully. I mean, that yeah. that first shot of the train station, of the police station, which we got to see in the video game as well, which was pretty cool. <laughs> 
Yeah, uh, I wouldn't do much differently. Um, uh, you know, who who would I be to mess with a masterpiece like this? Just to say, like, uh, I would make some changes. Yeah, that you're missing elements. It's really not missing elements from the book, I would say. Yeah. No, it's just, it's not the book. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, in a good way. I wouldn't. I, I wouldn't do anything differently with this movie unless we would sit when we already talked about adapting the book right in the other episode. And so we well, we didn't again, we didn't like, talk about that. We didn't. <laughs> no. Oh, because we knew we were doing this episode. So. Yeah. And, and, and well. I, <laughs> yeah, I don't know that. And plus it's been adapted for comic books straight from, you know, the source material. Mm-hmm. So I, it is interesting. I think that if you wanted to do something that was split down the middle, like Dr. Sleep, um, and maybe do a TV series that was somewhat based, uh, half on Blade Runner, half on do Android's dream and kind of mixed in between. Yeah. Um, it, I think that might work as, as a different property, you know, I mean, again, we will see what the TV show is. Are they actually, is there actually one in production? Yeah, it's uh, let me let me see if it's actually in production or if it's just because I don't think that's a bad idea. I mean, considering the fact that we've had now had Bates Motel and there <laughs> and every network seems to have some kind of prequel to Silence of the Lambs. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> at this point, um, I don't think it would be bad to do a. a a Blade Runner spinoff or TV show. What what is everybody's obsession with fucking prequels? Wait. Well, just it's move, just like just move the story forward. Just move <laughs> it forward. I don't need it to go backward. God. Well, you can blame my generation for that, Anthony. Cuz we're okay. so much into the lore and and figuring out all the elements and bringing everything together that prequels become part of that lore. And boring. We're a, my uh, the Gen, Gen X is obsessed with that element. Well, and I will say this: even though in a lot of ways I like twenty forty nine better, um, I'm one of the few people that likes the sequel better than than Blade Runner. But at the same time, like hmm. I see more things in twenty forty nine. I there are so many things I love about twenty forty nine, but there's also a few things that. I would. There are things I would change about that. Whereas Blade Runner, I mean, you could cut a half hour from it, and I'd I'd be okay with it. You could cut down you could Deckard, it down Deckard's involvement by a lot. Um, I think, and make Deckard. Uh, I think they're different. Yeah, for me, like I I like them both pretty much the same, but for very different reasons. Yeah. Well, so what I what I have on the Black Orchid, ser- or Black Lotus series is. It's been announced, but that's it. Yeah. So I don't know. I, I, I can't say for sure if they're working on it. There's no cast list or directors or writers, anything like that. Oh, well, they should hire us. If, yes. Hey, we are always available for Blade for Runner tie-ins. Even if you want me to do a Blade Runner prequel, I'll do that. Right. <laughs> Fine. Um, yeah, and... <laughs> Yeah, so Blade Runner, any final thoughts on on this movie? Like, uh, I think it's interesting to, you know, we had a whole episode going into the Voight test with uh, with Chris Firth, and so people can 
kind of get some background on that. We talked about the video game. Um, yeah, well, <laughs> there's not much more to talk about when it comes to Blade Runner. I don't think. Yeah, and 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 I I do really think that you know we'd like to be involved in the conversation with th- this movie. If people want to talk to us about it, we'd love talking Blade Runner. We all are fans. You know, we were fans of Blade Runner to begin with. Um, I don't necessarily, I think Blade Runner is a better movie than it is a Philip K. Dick adaptation, you know? Um, yeah. But it's plays such an important role in, in, because when you guys know, because doing a Philip K. Dick podcast, when you say, oh, I do a podcast about Philip K. Dick to the general public, you have to say, oh, he's the guy who wrote Blade Runner and Oh yeah, because the answer, how they know. the first thing they ask you is they go who, huh? Yeah, yeah. and I say Blade Runner. Oh, yeah, it's the same thing. Like when you talk to people about Richard Matheson, and they're like who, and you're like I am, I am legend. <laughs> I am legend, dog. I am legend. Twilight Zone. You ever watch the Twilight Zone? Right. Um, yeah, same kind of thing. It's, I, I like to say, you know, your favorite episode of the Twilight Zone? Yeah, Matheson probably wrote that. <laughs> yep, exactly. Um, or maybe Charles Beaumont because there's a lot of Halloween Man fans. So, it's true. Um, but anyways, uh, yeah. So Blade Runner, uh, I hot take. It's good. Uh, <laughs> it's great. I, I think part of it is that it's Ridley Scott early enough in his career that he was hungry, that he was like trying really hard to make like an insane movie with like great details and and, and incredible. Yeah, he went overboard. I, I think because he was so young and so hungry, he went really overboard in the detail in every aspect of, of making the film. And and that worked. I mean, more filmmakers should take that cue. And it, and, wait, and it has, well, well, hold on. Well, go overboard. But he's also inspired decades worth of science fiction visuals in let's do some new stuff, guys. Stop cribbing from Blade Runner. We get it. We get yeah. it. You you let's like the new visions. Yeah. Let's go. Yeah. I'm and... looking at you, altered carbon. <laughs> or uh mute. Or mute. Yes. Yeah. Which is a great movie. Great movie, but that is a hundred and thirty percent of PKD or I'm sorry, a Ridley Scott's Blade Runner esque world. Yeah. All right. So on that note, uh, we'll see folks next month for we've got a book episode coming up. Yeah. And a good one, too. Yeah. Um, I am halfway through reading it at this. I point. haven't even started. Yeah. I, I, I haven't even looked at it. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. So we'll see folks back for Ubik uh, next month. And we'll have a special guest for that. Ooh. So. All right, folks. Keep it paranoid. Later. Bye. Uh, paranoid.